Let's turn again to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. There's five chapters that I'm wanting to promote to you are a quarter of the book of John. And they cover three to five hours. A quarter of the book. I just want you to feast on how much the density of the Gospel of John toward the last hours of our Lord's life with his apostles. Amen. You know the story of Judas. This is the prophecy of him. And the longest that we just covered in verses 18 through 30. As you continue in the Bible, you're going to come to Acts chapter 1, where we read about the record of him dashing his bowels out. Matthew tells us the most about his guilt at what he had done and returning the 30 pieces of silver and the Jewish leaders mocking him. When you follow the devil, and the devil doesn't come at you in a red suit and a pitchfork and say, I'm the devil and I want you to hate God with me. He comes to you as an angel of light and says, you can be a Christian and have some fun in the world. He will destroy you with that lie. It will end up corrupting you on the inside, corrupting your marriage, corrupting your family. He is a destroyer. Judas was not happy. And he died a miserable death of self-murder or suicide. And the apostles replaced him in Acts chapter 1 with Matthias. So let's go to the next section. And I'm going to read verses 31 through 35. Judas has just left. As soon as Jesus handed him the sop, he went out immediately in verse 30, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Amen and amen. amen. Jesus has just identified the traitor. The traitor has left the supper, and Jesus goes into lessons about the glory that God has in store for him, that he's going to go away, but they'll be okay, and that they should love one another. When I preach to you that love is the greatest, it's because of passages in the Bible like this that show Jesus going after love, brotherly love at a moment like this. At this moment, to bring up brotherly love, not to bring up justification, not to bring up eternal justification, to bring up brotherly love, because that's very, very important. And it's how men will know the religion of Jesus Christ, how he wants it recognized, 
is by brotherly love among those that claim to be Christ. Verse 31, therefore, referring back to verse 30 and Judas Iscariot leaving, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Judas left the upper room and Jesus was left with the 11 saved and loyal apostles. He'd been troubled in spirit for telling the terrible deed, but Jesus now embraced it by telling Judas that what he was going to do, go and do it quickly. Get that mob ready because I'll be in Gethsemane for you to find me. All implied in the words, that thou doest, do quickly. Get your murderous friends together and do it quickly. But Jesus then said, and we should be familiar with these kind of words, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified. That's what we had in John chapter 12, from verses 20 through 33 that we spent so many weeks on, and we're just going to spend minutes on them today. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Look back at chapter 12, at just some of the verses. Let me just show you some of them. Verse 23, this is after the Greeks have been introduced to Jesus. Jesus answered them saying in verse 23, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He said in verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, It abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He says in verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 30, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me. And so there's a number of verses about the glory that Jesus knew was imminent. It wasn't right then that minute, but what was about to happen in just a few hours would put it into play. Because see, he used back here in verse 31 the word now twice. Now is the judgment of this world. Well, it wasn't right then, but the process was now being initiated. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Not quite yet, but just about. And the events were progressing and moving forward for both to take place. It's imminent. And so we have it, the word now, in our verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified. (coughs) The incontrovertibly great mystery of godliness was about to play out. Remember those six items? I just read you the three from John 12. But there were six in 1 Timothy 3 that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed unto the world, received up into glory. Because that receiving up into glory is when he was actually glorified the most. That was the crowning achievement of his life when he was crowned, Bible words, crowned with glory and honor. When he ascended up into heaven, we call it his coronation because the Bible says that's when he was crowned. The fulfillment of Psalm 49, among others, was to glorify Jesus as the Messiah. So as Judas fulfilled Psalm 41.9 by betraying the Lord Jesus Christ, it was another event in the process of Jesus being glorified for having fulfilled all that the Father gave him to do. And... Verse 31 tells us, God is glorified in him. 
Now is the Son of Man glorified, so that passages once obscure are seen being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right here at the table, and they're going to continue to be fulfilled through his trial, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. That was Jesus being glorified, fulfilling Scripture, completing God's work, ascending up into heaven, and being given great glory in the heavenly places. But also, God was glorified because Jesus did his work on earth and preached his gospel and honored God as his Father. God was pleased, God was honored by everything Jesus Christ did. His death to pay for our sins was one way of glorifying God, that God's plan in redemption was so wise and so prudent to send his son, born of a virgin, to die with our sins held against his account was an incredible thing. And it redounded to the glory of God. And it was all moving forward at this Last Supper, which was called in verse 1, the end. The end of his life with them before his death, burial, and resurrection. So in verse 31, Jesus continues to take everything back to the glory of God, and we should do the same. When something bad is facing you or something bad is in you, it's to the glory of God. Because everything is to the glory of God. We don't see the future like Jesus knew the future, but we know that everything is to God's glory. And what he's arranged for us in our lives is to his glory. If we respond properly, then there'll be blessing in that glory. He's going to get glory from us one way or another. But let's always take everything back to the glory of God. If someone says, well, that's a terrible thing that happened to you. Well, it's to the glory of God. All things work together for good, and he's going to get glory out of this. And if it takes him a month or a year or five years to get glory out of it, that's okay with me. We pray in this church often for God to glorify himself through us and to us. And we want to glorify God to others by being vehicles to the glory of God. Jesus, look at, look at this verse. Judas went out. He could have turned to his apostles and ripped the scoundrel. What would you have done? Hmm. Okay, enough said. Jesus went after the glory of God immediately. We are progressing toward the glory of God. That's why I told him to go do it quickly. Because it's got a great end. The finish is great. Getting to the finish is not going to be so great. And he's going to ask for the Father to deliver him from that cup. But the end result, who for the joy... The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has entered and has sent it down at the right hand of God, the Father, according to Hebrews chapter 12. Then now verse 32. If, if God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Now that's a lot of glory. And Jesus Christ deserves a lot of glory, got a lot of glory, has a lot of glory, and when you see him, he's going to be the most glorious thing you ever do see. Because that's all you're going to see. You're not going to see God in heaven. God is an invisible spirit. The Bible tells us that. But we'll see Jesus, and we'll see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The perfection of character 
in the Lord Jesus is God's glory. But now Jesus puts this in an if subjunctive type conditional way in verse 32. If God be glorified in him, then these things will follow. Well, now verse 31 has already said God will be glorified in Christ. So verse 32 is true. It's just the way that the Lord chose to word it, that if that's true, then this is also going to follow. If God be glorified in him. Jesus didn't use the word if to express any doubt or uncertainty at all about God's glory. He knew his execution of God's glorious plan of redemption would glorify God. Based on this suppositional or subjunctive verbal phrase that we have starting off verse 32, he then gets to declare the results. That if God is glorified in me, if I bring glory to God, then here's what's going to happen. If I've brought glory to God, then God is going to glorify me in himself. God is going to share things of his glory with me, and God is going to glorify me straightway. He is immediately going to go about glorifying me. This is not going to be a delayed response. It's coming quickly, which is what the word straightway means. And so Jesus sets it up that way by stating the truth in verse 31, then an if construction in verse 32, so that he can share, if I glorify God as his son, he is going to glorify me as his father and share his glory with me. And his glory will be put upon me. And his glory was. John 17, the Lord's Prayer, the first five verses, give me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. When we, look at, when we look at God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to remember that there's two natures in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of them is God. Right. <coughs> one of them is God the Word, and there's God the Father. We call him God the Father and God the Word, and they mutually partake of the same glory. And so there, we can't forget that about the man Christ Jesus, but the man Christ Jesus is going to be put as our mediator, as a man, at the pinnacle of the universe with great glory from God, as God's Son, as this is my beloved Son. This day have I begotten thee. That wasn't with Mary. That was with his resurrection and his place in heaven. I have begotten thee. And he's going to give him the universe. And a, a, the rod of iron Reign in his right hand, put him on David's throne over his kingdom forever. Verse 32, if God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself. It's going to be reciprocal. If I, by dying on the cross, and I will glorify God, and if I glorify God by dying on the cross and the things that happen after that, God is going to glorify me in himself. God is going to share his glory and put some of his glory upon me. And were there things that... We'll get to that in just a moment. Oh, it's so good to think about what happened right after this prayer with the use of the word straightway. Straightway means immediately, without interval or delay, at once. And I could turn you to references, but I hope you can even tell by looking here, God is not going to delay in honoring me, glorifying me for what I'm about to do for him. The justice and fairness of God even with the Lord Jesus Christ, to do something that glorifies God, God in turn glorifies the one that glorified him. That, that's, 
David understood that. I want all of you to delight in God, but I also want God to delight in each one of you. David knew that. Look at Psalm 18. This is a little off track, but I want you to appreciate the reciprocal relationship in glory that is between the Father and the Son and extends to us when we glorify God. He will glorify us. He will put a hedge about us. He will protect us. He will bless us. His favor will be visible upon us if we're glorifying him. Psalm 18, I referred to it on Wednesday evening. This is David's psalm of victory when he had defeated all his enemies. Look at verse 19. Speaking of God, David writing, He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Well, what did David do for God to delight in him? The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. This was true of David. It was true of the Lord Jesus Christ even more so. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also upright before him and I kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore hath the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyesight. With the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful. With an upright man thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward thou wilt show thyself froward. So it's all positive, 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 all the way from 19 to verse 26 until we get to the last clause. With the froward thou wilt show thyself froward. Back to John chapter 13. So the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, as soon as Judas went out, one more step in the initiation of my glory in heaven. God is going to be glorified in me. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Verse 31, and if God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself. God himself is going to do some things to give the Son glory and shall straightway glorify him. What happened three hours later? Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And they all fell backward. By what power did they all fall backward? The power of God. His son boldly meeting that mob after praying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, 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 Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He said it three times. Am I exaggerating it? Nevertheless, thy will be done. Whom seek ye? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And they all fall backward. God shall straightway glorify him. Oh, yes. That is my Savior, and that is his Father, and that is my Father, and that is your Father. Amen. And it's wonderful. That was three hours later. Is that a good definition for straightway? Straightway, three hours later, is what God did. Within a few more hours, just a few more hours, what happened? Was it an eclipse? No, you can't have an eclipse at the Passover. But God shut the sun down for three hours. Did that glorify his son? 
Well, what did the centurion say that was standing nearby? Surely this man was the Son of God. Oh, Lord, we love reading these things. And we love Jesus knowing you were going to do these things for him to help him to the cross. And he's sharing these things with his apostles to help them survive the cross and his burial and resurrection and then ascension into heaven. In just three days, God would raise Jesus from the dead as victor over sin in the grave. Does the Bible say that God raised Jesus from the dead over and over again with the residual power of the resurrection being so great that saints buried in cemeteries around Jerusalem rose and went into the city? Hey, you thought you buried me last month, didn't you? Honestly, there's only one verse in the Bible that tells us, but we believe it because God glorified his son for his son glorifying him. You do not know what God can do in your life. And I am not a prosperity gospel preacher, but you do not know what God can do in your life when you glorify him. Now to glorify God requires a costly sacrificial loss on your part to do so. Jesus is going to lay down his life. But he was glorified. Just think about that. A few hours later, not only was the sun darkened, but there was an earthquake that tore the rocks and opened the tombs. It was a guided earthquake. You've heard of guided missiles that once in a while hit their targets. How about a guided earthquake that opened tombs? And those bodies came out three days later when Jesus came out. How about the veil of the temple being rent in twain? I will glorify my son. My son glorified me. I will put some glory on him. Rip, dark, earthquake. Truly, the enemy that had put him on the cross confessed that he was the son of God. In just 43 days, God crowned Jesus with glory and honor before the host of heaven. Revelation 5 was fulfilled. 43 days later, three days in the ground, 40 days proving that he was alive to his apostles, ascending up into heaven. Revelation 12, Revelation 5, being fulfilled and God putting glory on him. The whole host of heaven singing praise to him. The redeemed host, the angelic host, all creatures, and the four beasts specially prepared for the glory of God. Amen. What do you have to say? Amen. Amen. But we're not done. In just 50 days, still straightway, in just 50 days, God sent the Holy Spirit on the apostles to glorify followers of Jesus. What a change took place in the day of Pentecost. One week later, Pena, 50, after Passover, 50 days after Passover. So for one week, the apostles did not have Jesus and did not have the Holy Spirit. But after that week, with the sound of a rushing mighty wind, it filled that house and they all glorified God in different languages, declaring the marvelous works of God. Peter was able to take scriptures and put them together beautifully. And we just recently preached through Acts chapter 2 because of the gift Peter had by the Holy Ghost to declare the glory of Jesus Christ. He was no longer fearful. He was fearless. He was bold. Peter lifted up his voice and said, These men aren't drunk. There were thousands accusing him of them being drunk. 
Because 3,000 agreed to be baptized. There were thousands. He was afraid of a little maid before the Holy Ghost. Total transformation of the church. Beautiful. If I, if, if I glorify God by what I'm supposed to do, God will glorify me in himself and he'll straightway glorify me. He will not delay in the matter. In just a few more years, Gentiles were converted to Jesus Christ throughout the Roman world by those apostles full of the Holy Ghost. In 40 years, God desolated both Israel and Jerusalem in the world's worst tribulation to glorify his son. It tells us why. Because they knew not the day of their visitation. They did not appreciate, that's what it says in Luke chapter 19. They did not appreciate the day that God's son visited Jerusalem. So he leveled the city. And so we, we look at verses 31 and 32. And Jesus looks at Judas Iscariot and all he can, I don't care. Big deal. What you're going to do, go do it quickly. I'm going to glorify God by letting you betray me, letting you kiss me, a treacherous kiss of treason. I will glorify God, and God will glorify me, and it won't take long. And where was Judas? What a terrible end. What a glorious end. Verse 33, little children... If this Savior called you a little child and you were 40 years old, would it bother you? Thank you, Lord, for such terms. Little children. Paul will use the same expression for church members of his churches. Little children. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He can be touched with all the feelings of our infirmities. He can relate to us. He can succor us. He is comparing himself to a father with little children, not a father with teenagers. Father with teenagers talks differently. It's not even a father with children. It's a father with little children. David wrote in Psalm 103, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. He remembereth their frame that they are dust. And here's Jesus Christ he is the one going to the cross. He is the one to be betrayed by Judas. He's the one that is going to die in the next few hours and knows it. He's the one that's going to be tortured and knows it. But look what he's doing. Little children, I will take care of you. And these five chapters take care of them. Yeah. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. I've only got a few more hours. These five chapters, what I'm about to tell you is all that I have for you, and I'm leaving. Ye shall seek me. You will wish for one of the days of the Son of Man, is how it's worded in Luke. You will wish for one of the days of the Son of Man. You will wish you could go back when you had me with you in person, when I was in my ministry on earth with you. Ye shall seek me. You will wish for one of those days. And as I said unto the Jews, so now I say to you, whither I go, ye cannot come. I have to go away and you can't go with me. We've always done everything together for three and a half years. And listen, every one of us are going to die. Yeah. 
we're all going to go away and you can't come with me. Sherry, you can't come with me. In spite of what we've told the children how we're going to end. And I won't say that. Death, death is the separator. Till death do us part. We say in a common marriage ceremony, till death do us part. And so Jesus is telling them just what he told the Jews. Flip back with me to John chapter 7. And it's very similar language that Jesus used with the Jews. John chapter 7, verse 33. Then said Jesus unto them, John 7, 33. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you. And then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, shall not find me. And where I am, thither ye cannot come. Well, they get all confused about that because they weren't very quick on the uptake as the Jews, for sure, and neither were the apostles. The apostles are going to bring this up again with the Lord over the next couple of chapters, but he's going to get plainer with them to when they say, okay, now thou art using no proverb, but speaking plainly. They'll say that to him. But here we are at verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. We've only got a few hours left, brethren. Ye shall seek me, you will wish for one of the days that we were together. And as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. But notice what he calls them. The, the, the emphasis of verse 33 is really the words, little children. We're going to be separated. You're going to miss me. You're going to be lonely. You're going to wish that some of those days were back, that we enjoyed the prosperity, the gospel, and God's pleasure in our lives. We were preaching, we were healing, people were rejoicing. You saw the branches cut down and put in my path as I was brought into Jerusalem to Hosanna. We had wonderful times together. But little children, I've only got a little while with you, so listen to me. A new commandment I give unto you. If there was one thing that was going to help 11 men get along and survive losing their Lord and Master, it would be brotherly love of each other. So he moves to brotherly love right here before his crucifixion. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Am I justified by preaching love is the greatest? Look at where he brings it up. Look at how he brings it up. Little children, I'm leaving. You're going to miss me, but you'll be fine if you'll love each other. Those 11 wild men sitting in that room that had some pretty strong opinionated men among them, if they would have brotherly love, would be one incredible band of brothers. And they turned out to be a wonderful band of brothers, 11 of them. And to them were added Matthias and Paul and Barnabas and James, the brother of Jesus, other apostles that were added to them later with the gift of an apostle. A new commandment I give unto you in verse 34. Now, is love of your neighbor a new commandment? No, it isn't. It's an old commandment. Jesus had taught during his ministry that the whole law of Moses could hang on two commandments. The love of God and the love of neighbor, which is brotherly love. However, there were some things that were different about it. And John loves to use this comparison. He'll call it a new commandment, then he'll call it an old commandment. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 
I'm sorry that we don't have a screen where I can punch buttons and give you 1 John 2, 7 and 8, requiring you to loosen that arthritic hand and get these pages turned or to use your cell phone and call them up. But look, notice how John, this same writer, this same apostle, the one that Jesus loved, uses old and new about the commandment to love each other. Brethren, 1 John 2, 7, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. So there are some ways that brotherly love is new, and there are some ways that brotherly love is old. Brotherly love is old is because it's been taught in the Old Testament. It was taught in Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, very plainly. Jesus, in debating with the scribe that was not far from the kingdom of heaven, remember their exchange? The scribe asked Jesus, what is the great commandment? And Jesus said, well, the great commandment is to love God, and the next commandment that's like it is to love neighbor as thyself. Thou hast answered right, Master. That is exactly all the commandments hang on those two. And Jesus said, Thou art not far from the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember that? It's in Mark. Because So it's old. But it's new. It is new to have brotherly love of this sort. I have several descriptions to show you how it's new. But notice verse 34, That ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Never before had there been an example of brotherly love like Jesus Christ loving his apostles. That's why we had verse 1 of chapter 13. He loved them during his ministry with them, and he loved them to the end. And the emphasis here is, one of the emphases is the example of love. It was not new from John. It was, it was old from Moses, and Jesus had taught it before. But it was new by the enlightenment of the greater light of the gospel. 1 John 2, 7 and 8, John said that it was new because the true light now shineth and the darkness is past. There was a brighter revelation of God and how we ought to treat each other and an emphasis on it from the cross, from Christ and the gospel forward. So it's new by enlightenment. And I use the word enlightenment because John used light in 1 John 2, 7 and 8, there's greater light under the gospel to understand love in a, in a fuller way. There is progressive revelation from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. God reveals more and more. And we have revealed to us more of the love. Listen, how did he show the love of God to Israel? Oh, they had vineyards already planted and wells already dug. Precious. Does that mean a well that you have to go drop a pail into it and haul it up and get blisters on your hand and walk it home and by the time you get home, half of it's already splashed out on the ground? Is that the... Yes. Oh, that kind of love. Well, you're telling me about that kind of love. Well, there's a whole new kind of love. It's the Lord Jesus Christ mercifully putting up with these 12 men for three and a half years and dying on the cross for them and for all of us. That was a display never seen before. So it's called the light. Thus, brotherly love was new by emphasis because never had it been emphasized as much as it is in the New Testament. 
It's called the bond of perfectness. It's compared to faith and hope. And the greatest of these is charity. It's compared to the greatest ministerial gifts the world had ever seen. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, miracles, tongues. Yet show I unto you a more excellent way. So it's new by emphasis. It's new by example. I just went over that with Jesus from this verse. It was new by explication, meaning explanation, and delivering it from the scribes. Matthew chapter 5. Oh, Matthew chapter 5. Thou hast heard that thou shalt love thy friend and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you that God intended for you to love your enemies because he does it every day. Are you familiar with Matthew 5? And if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you have broken the fifth, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. So it's new by explication, meaning deliverance from the errors and heresies of the scribes. It's new by enablement, for the Holy Spirit taught it internally so that Paul's able to write in 1 Thessalonians 4, there really is no need for me to teach you to love one another because the Holy Spirit's already done it inside you. This was all... This was, it was new. It was old. It was both. Amen. The old commandment is polished up and given power, an example that it never had before. It was new by enforcement, for the apostles required it. The apostle Paul wrote that church at Corinth and all of its problems, and he barely gets his salutation out of the way in chapter 1. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So it's new by enforcement, and it's new by evidence, because it's the highest proof of eternal life. It wasn't keeping the ceremonial law of Moses, that if a man could do those things, which he couldn't do, he would live, but it's adding to faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, yeah, I know what's out here. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get to. Faith, add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, patience, temperance, godliness, brotherly kindness and charity. The top two stones are brotherly love, brotherly kindness and charity. The top two stones, so it's, it's new by evidence. You want that list again? It's new by enlightenment, emphasis, Example, explication, enablement, enforcement, evidence. Things taught in the New Testament. You wouldn't have known from the Old Testament that you love one another. I've preached on that before, and I'll preach on it again. I've promised you that I will preach on love at least once a quarter in this church. The religion of Jesus Christ. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. This is not love of social programs as socialists and humanists corrupt his religion. You know, Gandhi would use the Bible if it served his purpose. Are you with me on this? This is not what I mean by love. We're talking about brotherly love. We're talking about the spirit that is within the body of Christ, of those that are bought by Christ, that are Christ, that are his, that are the sons of God. We love each other. And we will put down anything to maintain that love. It's not social programs. It's not the love of peace and unity over doctrine because it must have doctrine in it for it to be right love. 
It's not the love of compromise to end any and all judgment, like others say from Matthew 7, 1, judge not that ye be not judged. Our love is supposed to judge. This is not Jane Fonda's love of peace over war without regard for civil authority or national security. This is not love of murderers causing Mother Teresa spasms about capital punishment. You know, every time America, well, she's, can't, she doesn't have spasms anymore. But when we used to put a murderer to death, Mary, Mother Teresa would be having spasms, and, you know, people would reach out from the rest of the world to try to tell our government to stay the execution. But this isn't the love we're talking about. It's not the love of murderers. This is not sentimental card sending or cake decorating. No offense, Courtney. Without real love's virtues. This is not only positive aspects of love like kindness, but the negative aspects of love like suffering, forbearing, forgiving. Oh, it's wonderful. Look where Jesus brings it up. We've got five chapters. Little children. My little children, my apostles, I'm about to go away. We've only got a few hours left. I have some important lessons for you that will see you through this, and you can be great because you're going to be the foundation stones of the church of Jesus Christ. I'm going to heaven. You're going to be here. You have a great work to do. Here's how we get started. Love one another. Oh, and they needed to. Peter needed to love James and John. The sons of thunder needed to love Peter back and the rest of them that didn't say as much or do as much. They needed to love one another. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us these things. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And he had just given them a demonstration of it with great humility and service and condescension in the washing of their feet. If I, your Lord and Master, can get down and do this, then ye ought also to wash one, one another's feet. For this church to survive, I'm speaking for the Lord, to the apostles, for this church to survive, you eleven must love one another. Now as your pastor, for this church to prosper and be the chaste virgin that God wants, we must love one another the Bible way of loving one another. Some of you are excellent at it. Some of you are very deficient at it. You're very selfish, lazy, parochial, family-oriented. We are to love the body of Christ and to love one another. There's plenty of time for your family. There's 168 hours in a week the last time I checked. So for us to succeed as a church, we want to emphasize brotherly love. I've seen churches where brotherly love was not emphasized. Look at the location of this passage. I'm overwhelmed by it. Verse 1. He loved them that the Father had given him, and he loved them unto the end. He gives them a demonstration of love, condescension, humility, and service. Then he says, little children, I'm going away, and you're going to be alone, and you're going to wish that I was back. Here's how we're going to do it. You're going to love one another. I've shown you how. I've been the example. Now you do it. Okay, got to move on. Verse 35, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now men are, you know, some men are going to look at a loving church and they're just a bunch of nuts. It's part of the cult. It's the cult mentality. 
But men that know the truth and know the God of the Bible and know the Bible will be able to look at a group of apostles, a bunch of competitive fishermen, some of them were partners, some of them were not, and how they love each other. They forgive each other. They do not care about offenses between them. They just blow them away. Water off a duck's back. They forbear. They forgive. They forget. No bitterness, no malice, no envy, cheerfulness, service, love, enthusiasm, encouragement, comfort. And when you see a group of hotheads like are in this church that are able to get along like we get along, listen, it tells us something has happened. Either you've drunk the red Kool-Aid or God has filled us with his spirit. And since there's no Kool-Aid but just repetition of this particular doctrine of the Bible, God has changed us. The most independent, selfish, no need for anyone, man in here is your pastor. And I hope I care about each one of you as long as your face is set toward the cross of Calvary and to heaven beyond it and want to do what's right, I'll be there and do anything for you. If that isn't your interest, I'll help you find the door. But now, see, I just talked about myself for a minute. All I have to do is look around a little bit out there and see all of you and your selfishness and laziness and no care about people and take offense so easily at the least little things that are done. What's going to make our church prosper in the sight of God? This is Jesus, three hours away from being hauled out of Gethsemane, teaching us to love one another. And it's the great measure of of religion. Everyone that knows anything about our church knows that we love doctrine, knows that we love details, knows that we exclude quickly to keep our church pure. They know all these harder aspects of Christ's doctrine. But anyone that comes in here and sits also knows that we love each other. And the enthusiasm and the unity and the peace and the pleasure that we have with each other is Christ-like this way. But we're not perfect. And some of you are far from it. We vary in this church greatly from those that love the most to those that love the least. You can tell by the happiness because those that love the most are the happiest. When I look at these verses... When I see little children in verse 33, realizing what he's saying, when I see the glory that he's going to give to God in verses 31 and 32, and then he brings up love. Boom. That's why we've emphasized it in this church for many years now. There was a time when we didn't emphasize it, we didn't preach it because I hadn't been trained to preach it, because I hadn't heard it preached. I don't really care about the gap between your regeneration and your conversion as long as you're converted. And how do I know if you're converted? Because you'll love the other ugly people in this assembly. That's how I know you're converted. And if you're converted, I know you're regenerated, and I don't care about the gap between them. I don't care if it was nearly simultaneous. I don't care if it was 10 years. I don't want to waste my time chasing that rabbit down throughout the pages of Scripture. Whenever we come upon it, we'll preach it. But when we don't come upon it, we come upon this, we'll emphasize it. It's not by doctrine. It's by love. Amen. Did it work? Oh, yes. 
they turned the world upside down. Remember last Sunday, Galatians chapter 2? The right hand of fellowship, the real use of it. We've corrupted the use of it just to show people joining our church a little affection. We should call it something different, maybe. The Greenville Church Hug. Because <laughs> we do more hugging than we do handshaking. Shaking hands is what used car salesmen do just before they rip you off. That's right. <laughs> do I have a deal for you? But it was the apostles. Paul, James, and John. Paul said, I perceived that they were pillars in the church, but we extended to each other the right hand of fellowship. I would go to the uncircumcision, they would go to the circumcision, and we would both remember the poor. Just, it's beautiful. Paul's out preaching a doctrine that gave, that gave the apostles in Jerusalem a great deal of trouble because they heard that Paul was going everywhere saying that the, the commandments of Moses and the ceremonies of Moses, ah, forget them. You Gentiles don't need to keep them. It was causing a lot of trouble. That's why there was the council at Jerusalem. But when they got together at the council of Jerusalem, James, the Lord's brother, stands up and settles that conference and settles it easily with just four little commandments to give the Gentile churches just for a few years to put the Jews at peace. And Paul went off with Silas that, that next time. And so the Lord blessed these apostles to work together very well. The nature of man is such that total depravity, the, our nature is such by total depravity that brotherly love reveals the greatest grace. Believing something does not reveal a lot of grace because the devils believe and have no grace. Anybody can say they believe something. We have run into a lot of believers in the Gospel of John that Jesus didn't want to be around. Okay, I, I don't know why the Arminian world puts all the emphasis on faith if it were not for the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, where Paul had to deal with the specific heresy of Jewish legalism, there wouldn't have been an emphasis on faith because faith doesn't prove much. Faith without works is dead. But it's love that is the great evidence of a changed life. Paul said about himself and about Titus, for we were foolish before we were saved. We lived in envy and malice, were hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. After God changed us. But before God changed us, we were hateful. We were selfish. And so whenever I refer to myself or I refer to you that way, I'm referring to ourselves in the unsaved part of our flesh or in our unsaved lives before we were regenerated. We're selfish by nature. And so love is the greatest change. The devils believed and worshipped Jesus. And the Bible wants us to remember that. But to love is uniquely different from the devil. The devil is a what from the beginning? A murderer from the beginning. What is murder in God's view? Hatred. Anger without a cause. Name calling. Tailbearing. Tattling. Slandering. Whispering. He's a murderer from the beginning. Love isn't part of their kingdom. Love is a part of the Jesus Christ kingdom. And much more so now than it ever was as the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. A chief tool of Satan is to divide and conquer through hate and envy. Read about it in 1 John chapter 3. Envy and strife in your heart are not from God, but are from the devil. 
James chapter 3. Honest Christians know that brotherly love of all brothers is by far the hardest duty. To believe the doctrine of election? Come on. It doesn't take anything at all. Reprobates believe the doctrine of election, but reprobates don't love the brothers of Jesus Christ. It's the big difference maker. Saul hated Christians exceedingly in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, but the apostle Paul loved them dearly in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, and said, even though the more I love you, the less I be loved, I'm willing to spend and be spent for you. Beautiful. It's unnatural to love your enemies, but the Bible tells us to. It's unnatural to love your wife and not be bitter against her because they disappoint us. Even the best one. Sorry. But I'm not bitter. It's unnatural. Oh, I have a reservoir of bitterness that you can't even plumb the depths of. (laughs) If I were to squeeze that bottle, it'd blow my head off. But it's a commandment. I'm bitter. She's awesome. She's about 1,000 times better than I deserve. How can I be bitter? The Lord changes us. Thank you, Lord. Do not measure your religion by your faith, for it's far too vague and weak to be good evidence. It is easy to believe most anything, but to humble yourself to a sinful brother is more. Faith and knowledge are good, but they require love, and they inhibit love. It's faith that worketh by love, Galatians 5, 6. That's faith. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. 1 Corinthians 8, 1. These are things God's taught us. The devils have a monotheistic religion and tremble about it, but they don't have love. Okay, we've been over that so many times before. I want you to love 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 and realize in those 15 phrases that I try to remind every couple that gets married, there's positive ones in there like, and be ye kind. But it doesn't start off with kindness. What does it start off with? Can, can somebody give me a word that's used to define love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4? Suffer. Charity suffereth long. There ain't no suffering in love. Man, when you're eating the fruits of love, everything's wonderful. You're walking in the clouds. Your feet aren't touching the ground. Look what it starts off with. Charity suffereth long. Because it puts up with the offenses of others and forgives them. And these 11 men needed to do it, and we all need to do it. And it's our lesson. It's one of our lessons. We've had three lessons. Judas, glory, for glorifying God, God will glorify Those that glorify him, those that delight in him, he will delight in them. Those that are merciful, he will be merciful to them. Those that keep his commandments, he will recompense them and reward them according to their righteousness. Psalm 18. So now we come to the last section, verses 36 through 38 of John 13. You know we could preach on the love of those two verses before us for a long time. And we've done it before. Embrace them, and I hope by the grace of God and His Spirit, you see their location in the Bible in a different way than you did two hours ago. That you see the five chapters, you see chapter 13, you see it starting with love, and you see the first lesson being love. 
and you're gripped by it. That when Jesus wanted to help 11 men that weren't going to have him there physically, he had to get them to love each other first. Then he had to humble one of them and the rest of them as well. And so he humbles Peter. The last three verses. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Because he had said back there in verse 33, Yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, ye cannot come. So Peter is jumping back over the brotherly love. Peter, he'll change. He jumps back over the brotherly love to get to verse 33. And Jesus is going away. He ain't leaving me. I'm going with him. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, I love progressive revelation. Watch this. Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. I think Peter was starting to grab the idea of where it was. Jesus was going to die and go to heaven. And for me to be able to go with him, I got to die and go to heaven. So Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. It's a great spirit. Don't you love the man? Yeah, he gets out there a little too fast. But he doesn't want the Lord to leave him. He thinks he has a better solution than loving the brothers and hanging around down here to get the church going. <laughs> I want to go with you. I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Really? You will, huh? Verily, verily, I say unto thee. One of the 25 uses in this gospel only of that expression, verily, verily, is only in the gospel of John, and it's there 25 times to get our attention. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Peter, look at the singular pronoun thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Before morning... You will have denied me three times, Peter, and it's already night because of verse 30. Verse 30 tells us, and it was night. And when the cock unleashes in the morning, and they do get up early, you will have already denied me three times. And you read the, the, the other three gospel accounts of this particular transaction exchange between Peter and the Lord and Peter's Failure. You can't follow me now, Peter. He gives him a little bit more understanding of it. But thou shalt follow me afterwards. I've got something big for you to do. And oh, he did have something big for them to do. I mean, Luke, Acts chapter 1 that, that Luke wrote, Jesus told them, just, just wait here until you be endued with power from on high. And after that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you're going to have power like you've never had it before. There's going to be greater works than I did. You do not read of Jesus handing out handkerchiefs or aprons or anyone being healed by Jesus' shadow. You will do greater works than I did. And you'll, be, you'll preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Great power was coming, and that was part of the glorification of Jesus Christ because those that claimed his name had incredible power, especially in the early days of the church. Believers should know that Jesus went to heaven and we're going to follow. 
We should look forward to it. What does 14.3 tell us? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus didn't want to leave Peter and wasn't going to leave Peter indefinitely or permanently. He was going to come back for him. That's chapter 14. It gets so good. Five chapters, three hours, love to Gethsemane. This is how you're going to make it. And not only will you make it, you will turn this world upside down. It is expedient for you that I go away. And I remember once in a while. It's expedient for you that I go away because if I don't go away, you will not get the comfort that I'm going to send to you. You will have a personal representation and representative from heaven. The comforter. <coughs> Excuse me. Back to the last three verses of this 13th chapter. I hope that that's all understandable there. We want to look at the lesson. Simon Peter, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, you can't go with me now, but you'll come later. Peter said, I can go with you right now because I'm willing to, to die. I'm willing to hurl myself at the angry mob. I'll pull my sword out and cut the ear off of Melchus, the servant of the high priest. Oh, Peter, put your sword up. This is what I'm here for. So Confusion. Peter did not yet appreciate the power given to him. You would think the way the Catholics read the Bible and figure out as early as Matthew 16 that Peter was the first pope, that Peter would have figured that out by now. But Peter didn't have any idea of it, did he? He didn't, he didn't remember the words that were said in Matthew 16 where, it's, where Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church and, and unto thee I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You know, Peter wasn't doing any of this in his white pajamas. He wanted to go with the Lord right then because he did not understand it that way. He's going to understand a whole lot of things in the next few days better than he ever had before. Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Mark tells us that the cock had to, grow twice, had to crow twice before he denied him thrice. And it tells us when the cock, in Mark's account, when the cock crowed one of those times, which should have been a reminder you see, but it's only once here, it's only once Matthew, it's only once Luke, it's twice in, in Mark. If you were to read about an airplane crashing at GSP from the Greenville News and the Spartanburg News, and they had a, hadn't pulled it from the same writer, would there be little differences between Spark, Sparkle City reporting something and our wonderful city of Greenville reporting something? There'd be differences. Everyone knows that. And there's differences in the gospel accounts. And we love putting them together where the Lord will allow us to see something put together that adds value. And we get value that Peter had a reminder in the middle of his three. Let's remember something before we make too much fun of Peter. All the apostles said that they would die with Jesus as well. All of them. He's just out front because he's always out front. He speaks the loudest and he speaks the first. But the rest all said that they would go and die with the Lord as well when Jesus said to them, all of you shall be offended because of me this night. And that's the kind of stuff I want to get to with you before we leave. In Luke's account, Jesus gives us a little inside information. Satan wanted to have Peter, the leader of the apostles. Let me not only have Jesus, let me have the leader of the apostles and see what I do with him. And Jesus told Peter about it. Satan has asked for permission. 
It's not said there, but Jesus gave him permission. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. This isn't going to destroy you, but it's going to humble you. And when thou art converted, you'll be better able to strengthen your brethren. And you're going to lead these 11 men. But I have got to humble you first. Lord, have mercy upon us and pray for us. Lord Jesus, when we pray, brethren, and ask for the Lord to put a hedge about us from our flesh, from the world, and from our enemies, from the devil, it's because we need that hedge. If the Lord turns us over to any of them, we're capable of anything. Peter went down in three, four, five, six, nine hours. Done. Three times. With curses and oaths. Because a maid questioned him. Then another maid questioned him. A maid. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know anything about this man. In fact, I don't even know what you're talking about. David numbered Israel and cost 70,000 lives. Look what happened to Job in the matter of a few hours. While one servant was explaining of a loss on Job's balance sheet, another servant arrived while he was speaking to say that Satan had taken away the next chunk of the balance sheet. But God can put a hedge about us, and God will deliver us. And if you will resist the devil, he will flee from you. Because of Jesus Christ's finished work. The terrible account of Peter's failure was recorded in all four gospel records of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Peter had to live with the infamy of his failure that night in every labor, everywhere. Everywhere Peter went, it was known this is the one that denied Jesus and was written up four times in four gospels. And Peter failed once again in Antioch when Paul had to rebuke him. Yet Peter has two epistles in his name and was a chief pillar in the church as Paul identifies him in Galatians 2. Now listen, brethren. You've got to examine yourself to determine if you're more like Judas or Peter. The Lord wants you to be like one or the other because in between is just a belly-worshiping, carnal, Christian, world-loving, family-loving baby. Peter wasn't a baby. Peter wept bitterly and waited for his Lord. And as soon as he heard word that there may have been a resurrection... He raced to that tomb to run into it to see if it was true that Jesus had risen from the dead. And on the day of Pentecost, he wasn't fearful. He lifted up his voice. He led those apostles in Acts chapter 1 to replace Judas Iscariot. You have, brethren, we have in this chapter Judas in the longest description of that traitor. And we have Peter. Which are you? To think you are better than Peter is folly because you are nothing in comparison to him. If tradition is correct, and we don't care, he was crucified upside down. We believe he was crucified by the words the Lord are going to speak to him. The Lord will speak to him in chapter 21 of this epistle, this gospel. Judas was a reprobate that is in hell, which you're supposed to prove is not true about you. And it takes work to prove that it's not true. It's not to say, I'm not a reprobate. That's meaningless drivel and twaddle to say that about yourself. How do you know you're not? Prove it to us. The book of life is evident by the fruit in lives. Spiritual fruit 
in lives. Not ministerial fruit, spiritual fruit of the things the Bible teaches like love of the brethren, hospitality, entertaining, graciousness, kindness, liberality, generosity, forgiveness, forgetting, embracing, encouraging, comforting, cheerfulness, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, meekness, temperance, all that stuff. Screams, their name is in the book of life. Whining, complaining, sad sacks, selfish, loners, withdrawn, prove that the name is not in the book of life. This is the Bible. Which are we? Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, I would you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. We don't want to be in between Peter and Judas. Be a Judas, it's okay. We'll exclude you and be better off without you. But you want to be a Peter? Then get up and weep bitterly and prepare for the Lord to return. He's in the Bible for a reason. He wasn't worse than the other apostles. They all said they would die with the Lord. They all ran away like scared sheep. John and Peter kind of hung around on the outskirts of the chief priest's house and Pilate's house. This is what we've got to think about. Judas was a reprobate that's in hell, and we're supposed to prove that we're not a reprobate. Reprobates get into churches with the devil's help. They put up a good enough front that weak Christians can't discern them. Jesus said tares look like wheat to be reserved for the angels. However, Christians with the Holy Ghost and the Word of God can see the lack of spiritual fruit. Let's be Peters. doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Jesus didn't care what Peter had done in the past. Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? Lord, you know that I love you. Three times for three denials. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Take charge and get this show on the road. Take over in Acts chapter 1 and get a replacement for Judas. And get up and open your mouth. Peter got to stand up at the council of Jerusalem. God made choice by my mouth for the Gentiles to hear at the household of Cornelius. God made choice by my mouth. Peter was able to say, so I say to any one of you, forget the past. Guys, I think the Lord's risen. Peter takes off to get to that tomb to confirm it. And Jesus was looking for him because the angel of God that was sitting there when the women arrived said, go and tell his apostles and Peter that he is risen. One of Jesus Christ's favorites before and after. What are you, brethren? What am I? Peter was a great apostle that attempted great things for Jesus Christ. His failures are recorded to let us know that we can fail and still be great for Jesus Christ. Jesus forgave Peter like God forgave David. He went on to kingdom greatness. And so when we read about Peter, and he's in all four gospel accounts, let's not leave him there because he wasn't left there. And the Lord was always looking out for him. David, you and I have always marveled at Peter standing there warming himself telling one maid, no, I never knew him. I don't even know what you're talking about. Another maid, another man says, you're a Galilean, your speech bereath itself. 
Oh, and as soon as he gets the last denial out, the cock crows. And he looks over and Jesus turns. I think Jesus was quite occupied at the time. He turns and looks at Peter. And he went out and wept bitterly. I, what in the world? I said I wouldn't. And six hours later, I did. A broken heart and a contrite spirit, God will not despise. Amen. Remember the R factor? Yes. Repent, brethren, and be great in his kingdom. Be like Peter. Repent and be great. Most Christians, speaking of those truly born again, not Judas reprobates, are worthless compared to Peter. They seldom or never have a thought of conviction or changing anything for Jesus. They smugly think themselves okay or better than Peter, though with no works at all like his. They never fail living up to promises because they've never promised to do anything. Many are belly worshipers that love their little lives without love of Christ or his people. We can learn from him. The apostles were offended at Jesus. The apostles were offended. It's the word Jesus used. All of you shall be offended of me tonight. With whom do you compromise? Who is able, who, not what, who is able to exert pressure on you that hinders your religion and love of Christ? Whoever it is, and their friend, and all of them added together are worthless. Absolutely, utterly worthless. Why would you ever be offended of Jesus? Why would I ever be offended of Christ? Why would I be ashamed of him? What have I brought into my life or what have I allowed in my life where I'm not willing to take a stand? We are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and this is the way we're going to do it. I don't care what you think and I don't care if I never see you again. Who really loves the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are we offended? How do you, how do I, Deny our Lord in word or deed. Who intimidates you to compromise? Who is your maid? Everyone has maids that exert some form of pressure to deny him. Who is your maid? Who is your friend? Who is your colleague? Who is your peer? Who is your child? Who is your sibling? Who is your parent? Who's your maid? You ashamed of Christ? You ashamed of his church? You ashamed of our doctrine? Jesus is looking at you and at me right now. That's why we assemble. Because he comes and meets his, with his candlestick in every church. Jesus is looking. When he sees lukewarmness, he says, I wish you were hot or cold. I hate that middle category. He's with this candlestick today. We gather together in this place to do what we've done today to meet with him. Amen. We need more weepers. Bitterness of heart and broken spirits to repent and change. And Jesus looked at him. And Jesus looked at him. And Jesus has looked at us through 38 verses of John 13. We should go out and weep bitterly for any compromise that we have in our lives or any denial of him or any betrayal of him 
And I hope I've said enough today to know that it's a whole lot easier to do those things than what Judas did. When we befriend the world, we commit adultery. We are no longer the chaste virgin of Christ. We are a little slut befriending the world. We're adulterers and adulteresses. We're his enemies. What a loving Savior. What a glorious Redeemer. What a forgiving friend. What a gracious God. God and Jesus Christ were to Peter and the other ten, and how he put them together, gave them the Holy Ghost, and made something incredibly great from them. Here we are, sinful scum, saved by grace, brought together by God's providence in our lives. He's graciously forgiven us. He's given us his word. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Will you love each other with me and strive to be like Peter? And let's attempt some great things for his kingdom. And we start right here in this group of people, in our homes, with our wives. Let's follow our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ.